Let's do Mark. Head over there to Mark chapter 7. Let's continue on this study. I, like you, have these sets of keys that sometimes get me into trouble when I forget about them in my pocket when I'm going through airport security. Or if I misplace them and can't figure out where they're at. Okay, But I have a couple of these keys that look almost identical, and they're the same thing but different. Actually, one does my house and one does the church. They're both gold, they look alike, and they're right next to each other. And so I often stick the wrong one in the wrong door at the wrong time, except for one of them has a little bit of an emblem. It's just stamped on it, and it says GM on it. That's not for a vehicle, but it stands for a code that we have with all the church keys. This GM stands for, any idea? It's the key that opens every door in this building. The Grand Master, yeah. The Grand Master, we only have a few of those. And uh, these, we have other keys at different levels. There are some masters and there's entry ones and different doors like that that you can get in some areas, but you're limited. You might be able to get in the front door, but you can't get in any of the inside doors if they're locked or, you know, you can't get in all the doors. But the GM one, that's the key that, you know, it's, it's supposed to be... A few of us have this stat that you can get around anywhere in the building if you're supposed to. So it's a, it's a key that unlocks a lot of areas around here. And it works out well. And so we, I want to make sure I don't lose this key and don't bend it the wrong way. I did that years ago. I bent one of these Grandmaster keys and it didn't work. But, you know, got it re, replaced and it works out fine. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is giving a GM a grand master for how to get the blessings for the Lord, how to unlock and open doors for him to be able to give more blessings. It's an interesting text. What's happening at the beginning of the chapter, is, or at the end of chapter 6, the beginning where we were last week, is he's talking about all these people coming to him and wanting healings, healings, healings. And then all of a sudden in chapter 7, there's a shift. There's people coming yet, and it happens all the way through chapter 7. But at the beginning of the chapter, there's people who come to him in opposition. It's the Pharisees. They're against him. And then in the last half of the book, there's others who are coming to him, and they're wanting blessings as well. They get the blessings. The Pharisees don't. And it's kind of ironic because the Pharisees claim that, remember what they would do upon graduation? Anybody remember from our class that took so many years on the life of Christ? When you graduated from the, from the Pharisee school or seminary, do you remember what they gave the students? They gave him a key. The key that they gave them was a symbol of you now have the key to truth. It's interesting that Jesus would say to Peter, I give you the what? The keys of the kingdom. He's using, a, he's using an expression that and something that was symbolic even out of the Pharisees. That they claimed that they had the key to all the truth. And yet, do you remember where we were last week in those first verses throughout the first paragraph actually of Mark chapter 7? He is going to identify those who claim they have the key of truth, that they had the authority, that they had knowledge. He's going to say that actually you have the wrong type of faith. You are totally misled and not only misled, but what are they doing with people? They're misleading them. And he basically pointed out that their faith was, was a horrible faith because of two reasons. The first reason was that they didn't admit their own sin or sinfulness. We talked about that at length. That they were talking in that first part of the chapter that the only way you get polluted is by the things you touch or the things that you eat. And so they were very pharisaical. They were very legalistic about what they touched and what they didn't touch. And that's what got them upset that Jesus' own disciples, do you remember the practice that his disciples did not do that they considered was non-kosher? 
the washing of the hands, right? And uh, before they ate. And Jesus says, wait a minute, you guys don't have the real truth. You don't have the key to blessings. You don't have real faith. Because one, you don't admit your your own sinfulness. That it's inside every single one of us. And number two, the problem with your, your faith is that you aren't following the word of God. They were adjusting it. They were denying it. They were shifting it. Even to the point that they were saying, we don't need to take care of our parents. That's not true. As long as we put our money into Korban, dedicated to the Lord when we pass away, we can get away from other biblical obligations from the law because we can finagle. We can, we can finesse our way through these rules and regulations. And so Jesus condemns them. At the end of the end of that whole story, Jesus is condemning them and saying that they are hypocrites, saying in Matthew, the parallel passage, saying that they are like a tree that's going to be totally rooted up. Very clearly, they are false teachers, false faith. Then he shifts in the story, and the second half of the chapter, he is going to commend people for their faith. He's even going to say to the lady we want to talk about for a few minutes, he's going to say this to this lady, you have, in Matthew 15, he says the words, you have great faith. And basically in the, in the, in the original, it's you got mega faith. You have outstanding faith. In Mark, we read that he says it this way in, uh, in the gist of the story. Jump all the way down to verse 29. He says, For this saying, go your way, the devil has gone out of your daughter. What saying? Because of this saying, the devil is, you know, you go your way and I'm going to answer you and give you blessings. Because of her saying, the, this saying is what she has said. And that's why in Matthew, the parallel passage, his response is because of your mega faith. She has faith, and so do the other characters in the rest of the story, that is real. They have the real key to truth. They have the real key that unlocks blessings. And so it's interesting how this story, how this chapter unfolds. You have an illustration of terrible faith then you got an illustration of terrific faith. Let's, let's talk about the terrific faith. Let's identify it, but let's set the scene a little bit better. We read in verse 24, as the story of what happens is, after Jesus has been down in that region where he has been teaching and preaching down in Capernaum, because of the conflict that is brewing with the Pharisees, because it's becoming more intensive, because it's becoming um, more, more pressed, Jesus is going to leave the area. And he's not just going to go out of Capernaum, which is in the northern part, he's going to leave all of Israel. Look at the verse 24. Where does he go? Or Yeah, verse 24, 25. Where does he go to? Tyre and Sidon, into that region. What do you know about that region? Is it within the confines of Israel? Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Okay. It's not. It is in northern part. It's what we call today modern Lebanon. This is outside of Israel. Even though Jesus has said earlier, he has said, go where? Go to the Jews. Sends his disciples to the Jews. He says, I am come to the Jews to minister to them. This is the one occasion that he leaves the region, goes out of Israel, and he is in non-Jewish territory. Tyre is historically an area that many of the Jews know about. There was a queen in the Old Testament who came from uh, Tyre, from this very region. She's a wicked queen. She ends up marrying a guy who is the worst king in Israel's history. Any guess who I'm talking about? The queen? It's Jezebel. 
It's Jezebel. This is her home territory. Ezekiel and Zechariah, they both, in Ezekiel 26, Zechariah 9, they both preached clear messages condemning Tyre and Sidon. So from a Jewish perspective, how do they view Tyre historically? Good? Bad? Terrible? If they could nuke it, would they nuke it? Yeah, yeah, they would. And so Jesus leaves this region. This is the irony of the story. He leaves the region and he goes to an area where there's Canaanite or there's uh, Gentiles and they're called Canaanite. She's called a Syrophoenician woman, which is another term for the Canaanite. Uh, in your King James and this text in Mark, uh, Mark 7, she might be called a Greek. All of them have the same idea. She is a non-Jew. She is from this region where it is not Jewish at all. Uh, and she's not historically, you know, from that, that vintage of marrying into Jewish family. She has no roots there. And he goes and ministers to her. And it's, a, it's an amazing contradiction. The people who claim to have the key to truth, they don't have it. But who has it? Who understands Jesus? A Gentile even outside of Israel. So it's a fascinating story that it would be plugged in here. And so Jesus goes up there and he's going to be preaching. He goes and read the verse now, as I'm just saying, you go ahead and read through that. In verse 24, is he going to preach? Is he going that region purposely in order to proclaim the gospel? Or do you have an indication of another reason? What's that? He's going to hide. He's going because he doesn't want to be known up there. Okay, we understand this. There's conflict brewing, and so this conflict is going to come to a head. So it makes sense he's going to leave the area of Jerusalem just to let the dust settle a little bit. I mean, the area of uh, the Jews, just to let the dust settle. And he's going up there, but he has another goal in mind that we read in the other Gospels. He takes with him what group of people? Small group. Take a guess at the small group. Okay. It's going to be the 12 disciples. And he's going to go up there and he's going to try to keep himself out of the public eye. Why? This is closing in in his last year of ministry. Why does he want to be out of the public eye? He needs to spend time with uh, 12 preparing them for his, his upcoming departure. So this is going to be a private schooling event. He's going to pull them aside, take them aside. In fact, that he's doing this, it doesn't mean he gets away from everybody because as this passage says, that even though he is trying to keep a low profile and focus in on one-on-one -on -one ministry with the 12, what does the verse say? He cannot be, he cannot be hid. Okay, and so he's going up there, and what happens is he goes into a certain house, as we read, and when he goes in, this woman, this certain woman that we already mentioned, that she is you know, a woman who, verse 26 says, is a Greek, Canaanite, Gentile, Syrophoenician by nation. She is not, not pro-Jewish, that she comes to the house where he's trying to have private moment, and she's going to try to have conversation with him, and she's very, very insistent on doing that. And so Jesus is there. Uh, if you hold your finger here and go back to Matthew 15, just to add a couple different details that might give you a little bit of insight into the story. If you go back to Matthew 15 and follow, there's a little bit of detail not given in Mark 7 that's important. When Jesus was going into that area and entering into the city, before he went into the house, we pick up the story in Mark 
Mark, uh, Matthew 15, verse 22. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast, cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not. The disciples came and besought her, saying, Send her away. She cries after us. What's that tell you? That tells you that even before he got into the house, she's there. She's following them. How long it is, we don't know. But it's long enough to get who upset? To irritate the disciples. You know how it is where people, you know, you're driving in a car and the kids ask you those infamous questions. Are we there yet? How long? And then after about the third time, you want to throw them out of the car. Okay, they just kind of, they get to that spot. Well, obviously, she's gotten to that point. She's irritated them. So there's some time going by. They go into the house, and she's knocking on the door. She's becoming, in the eyes of the disciples, she's a plain old pest. Okay, and so we don't get all that little background information that she's been following them, that she is, she has already had contact. It almost reads in Mark, if we read it separately, that all of a sudden he's in the house and she comes and never had any contact. That's not true. There's a little bit more contact there. So back in Mark chapter 7, she comes and has that contact with Jesus. And I mentioned that when she has a conversation with him, Jesus and her have one of the most interesting and what some people say is the most insulting conversation Jesus ever has with anybody. And Jesus is attacked quite frequently for what he says in this text. That he is rude, crude, and he is just insensitive to people. They don't understand the full story. They don't, go, they don't get what's going on here. And so you and I, as we read it, let's put the pieces together and let's start with this. The, the ending of the story. She is blessed because of her faith. Because of her saying, because of her mega faith, she is able to unlock blessings upon her life. She has the right keys where the Pharisees don't. And I just find it so ironic. The Pharisees who claim to be the gatekeepers, to have the keys, they miss it. And this Gentile, she gets it. What is it about her faith that unlocked the doors of blessings? Three things. Number one is this. She believed in the greatness of God. Very simply, nothing profound, but yet something very profound. She believed in God's greatness, the greatness of God. She believed that he was great enough he could do anything. He could absolutely do anything. What we mean by that is this. She comes to him, and what is her dilemma? What is she beseeching Christ to do? She has a daughter, okay, that the daughter has a problem, which is a what? A demon, an unclean. And we just read over in Matthew, it says that the demon is vexing her grievously vexing her. In that term that Matthew used, the, the term that, that he has there is that she is being attacked vehemently. She is, being, uh, she is suffering onslaught. She is being absolutely mauled by this demon. We don't get all the details. We don't know exactly what's happening. We've read about elsewhere demons taking the kids and casting them in the fire. We don't know all that information, but we know that she recognizes this as a demon. She recognizes, she knows that there's a power that's afflicting her daughter, and she comes and she is so desperate, she shows her desperation by doing what? She falls at Jesus' feet. She is pleading with him. She is begging him. We'll get to that in a moment. But she believes, 
that Jesus can handle even the demon. She believes that he can handle something that's been going on a long time. The word that we get out of, the, out of Matthew where it talks about vexing, it's what we call an imperfect verb. It meant that it's been happening for an extended period of time. This isn't just all of a sudden last week this girl woke up and she had an upset stomach and it happened to be a demon. This has been, we don't have any of the information how long, this has been a chronic demonic attack. It's been going on. And yet the mom believes, this mom who is not Jewish, hasn't heard the press about Jesus being living in Jerusalem, she is fully confident he can do something to handle a demon. He can do something to handle a problem that's been lifelong. Now, we believe that up here. Okay? Do we believe it down here? When it comes to our bills, when it comes to bringing changes into our life, helping us to overcome some habit in our life, helping us to overcome a besetting sin, helping us to see changes in our kids' lives or our relatives. Can, do we believe he can take an impossible situation? That he can rectify some conflict, some marriage issue, some family crisis? Do we believe that? Do we believe he can handle our financial problems, our health issues? This woman believes that. And so she comes to him believing in the greatness of God that he can do anything, that he can do anything for anyone. Let's highlight some thoughts on her. Jesus is gonna is is walking. This woman is following. When it says he did not speak to her, that could be because Jewish rabbis aren't supposed to be talking to the ladies. And then on top of it, we know Jesus did that at other times. But not only is she a female, but what is she on top of that? A Gentile female. Okay, and so here she is that she's beseeching him. She's loud enough that everybody is hearing this. And she's, you know, one that's, that's following him. And Jesus turns to her. And Jesus speaks. Now, in Matthew it says, and did I read it already? Where it said in Matthew verse 15, verse 23, he answered her not a word. And the disciples said, get rid of her. And this is, that's when he turns and says these comments that we read here in Mark chapter 7. Go down to verse 27. The most insulting phrase some say Jesus ever said. Let the children first be filled... For it is not meat or proper to take a children's meal or bread and to cast it unto where? Under the dogs. Okay, what is he just called the woman? Okay, now that, can you see why most people who read this for the first glance and don't understand, they think, oh, you called the woman a dog. Okay, that, that's, <laughs> Jesus, are you criticizing her looks? Are you commenting, you know, are you, are you doing a modern day, you know, comment that's just, no, he really isn't. But what do we know about dogs typically in a lot of ancient Near Eastern world? Okay, they're, they're usually roving bands. They're scavengers, okay? That's the typical. Do we know, did, did ever people ever call one another dogs? Yeah, it happened. I mean, um, Goliath says to David, do you think that I'm a dog that you would come out here? You know, is that you would send this kid to come out and fight? Um, you know, there's, there's that phrase that's used at times, you know, that the Jews would do it. And yet the verbiage that Jesus uses and the word he uses, he uses a word that can be interpreted dog, but typically it's not the scavenger dog. In most biblical literature, extra biblical literature, it's for the domesticated dog. And it's more of the younger dog. So he's talking not necessarily about, and he doesn't use a phrase that you and I would just, without knowing that, we would say, oh, you're calling him a dog. No, he's talking, he says, you don't, if we want to give it its most clear 
specific interpretation translation you don't take the food from the child's table and give it unto the puppies okay that's what he's talking about and he's talking basically if the kids are eating at a table and there's a puppy what does that tell you about the dog is it is it a scavengered animal that's just roving the streets it's become a what it's become a pet okay now that's that's one one important aspect of how he says it number two aspect okay is he doesn't say to this woman okay he's using a parable he's not calling her a dog but he's just using a parable which he's done at other times he doesn't say we never would feed the dog or the puppy he doesn't say it what does he say feed the feed the children first that's critical right He's not saying we aren't going to give the food and shouldn't give the food to the pets, but what's the proper thing to do? Feed the kids first, okay? which everybody would agree with. Okay? If you have limited foods, you feed, the, you feed the children first. And isn't it true that Jesus has said, I go to the house of Israel? Where did he tell the, his disciples to preach? To the Jews only. But do not make this mistake. Do not assume and do not say that Jesus never ministered outside of Israel. That's not true. This chapter, he does it here and read the rest of the, the next story. He goes to Decapolis and there he heals the man who is deaf and dumb. That guy isn't in a Jewish territory either. So his bulk of his ministry was amongst Jews. That was his first place but did Jesus minister at times to Gentiles? Here it is. Okay, it was infrequent, but it, it's here. So he's not saying we don't ever consider Gentiles, but the gospel must go to the Jew first. Okay, and that's, that's a biblical pattern. We understand that. And so Jesus is not condemning this woman. He is not saying we have nothing to do, but he's just giving a biblical theological order that he is going to follow. We give, the Jew, we give the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And so in his comments, it's not as abrasive as what we normally would read in our modern day, what he is saying. And she totally understands where he's coming from. And she says, yeah, but even though the food should go to the children first, what does she say about the puppies? They, they at least get, they get something out of this. They get the crumbs that fall from the table, from what overflow. And Jesus' response is not con to condemn this woman, but to commend her for her faith. That she is believing that Jesus would bless a Gentile, a female Gentile, one who's from a really rotten area that is very anti-Jewish, and by the way, the Jews are very anti-it, that she, she is requesting that he would bless her. She is admitting, I do not deserve this because I am one of that class that I'm not of the childhood table. I, I'm, I'm like, you know, the second, the second tier. But at least I believe the blessings can fall upon us. And so she's demonstrating faith. Faith that God can do anything. Faith that God can do anything for anyone. Faith that God can do anything for anyone from anywhere. How do I know that from anywhere? She's not near her house. If you go to the story and follow in verse 30, that Jesus says to her, in verse 29, he says, okay, go your way. I don't know how far it is, 
Neither do you. There's no indication in the text where she lived, how many miles, how many furlongs her house was from the house where Jesus was. But there is obviously it's not the same house. So he says, go your way. And it says when she was come to her own house. There's some distance, some travel. And she believed that when Jesus said, your daughter is healed, Jesus could heal with his word even over a distance that he could work. That he didn't have to be there. By the way, can I remind you of two other ladies who struggled with that very concept? That when they had a crisis, they made comment that if you had been here, the crisis wouldn't have occurred. Mary and Martha with the death of, they thought he had to be right here. Okay, so we're getting a demonstration of somebody that has some remarkable understanding in faith. Okay, so we make this observation, okay, that she believed in the greatness of God. Do you want to see her faith continue in action? Her, what she does, secondly, let's make this observation about her. She believes strongly enough to beg, okay, to beg for God's intervention. Not only did she believe he could do it, but she begs for it. She, because she believes, she prays. She comes to Jesus, and we've already seen this in the story, that she is pleading for him. In fact, look at the verbs in verse 26 of Mark 7. It says, she did what towards him? Where it says, and she blank him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. What, what verb do you have? She besought in the King James. Anybody else? Begged? Okay. It's that idea. It is very intense. It is pleading. And uh, so she's, she's one who's, you know, she personally does this. But she not only does it personally, she does it persistently. The verbiage, again, used in this where she besought, she begged, it's, it's again, it's that verb that it kept on happening over and over. Remember, she's been following them, following them, following them to irritate the disciples. So she is begging. She believes... And it's one thing to believe, but it's another level to believe enough that you pray about it, that you beg about it, that you, you do what you can about it. God, I'm coming to you. So she comes, she pleads, she asks, please, Lord, would you do this? And she doesn't stop asking him, even though there's silence. Do you remember we read in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 15? He answered her not a word. There wasn't an immediate response do you remember the only thing she could be hearing is the disciples, get rid of her. Tell her to leave. She's bothering us. She's drawing attention to us. But she continues, despite what others say, despite not an immediate response by, by God, despite that it feels like silence, and she's getting silence, she is persistently begging because she believes. She believes that God can handle this. She believes that God would give her an overflow of blessings. So, we know that she believes in the greatness of God. She begs for God's intervention. Can you a third aspect of faith that stands out in her story? She believed enough to behave according to his word. She behaves according to his word. What I, what I mean by that is this. In verse 29, for this saying, because you have said that you believe I can bless even the puppies from the overflow of, of blessings, that you don't believe you deserve it, but you are begging for it, you are asking for it, you have such a... By the way, is that a contrast of attitude compared to the Pharisees? Yeah, right? What did the Pharisees, did they think they deserved blessings? Yeah. 
Yeah, here's this woman who is in humility saying, I don't deserve it. I am equated to the animal kingdom, if you would. And so she's saying, you know, he's saying, because of your saying, because of your faith, because of what you, what you are doing. He says, go your way. The devil has gone out of your daughter. By her, in the next phrase, when she was come to her house, by her uh, behavior, by her going and doing what Jesus just told her, she is claiming his promise. If we can use modern day terminology. She is behaving according to his word. She is leaving, going, saying, I believe, I trust. Yeah, it, she, wasn't, she wasn't insistent, like, you got to come with me. you got to come with me. She's believing him. And she goes her way, and she has those results. Uh, let me remind you about a few instances. Naaman, you want to be healed. You need to behave according to my word. If you want to have the healing, what do you have to do, Naaman? How many times? Okay. You, you know, I told you I'm going to drop the walls. You're going to conquer this city. But if you, you not only have to believe me, you have to do what? For those seven different days. You've got to march around. You believe that um, I can provide your needs. You believe that. But what do you have to do? Um, what do you have to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? For, for most, of it, most of you. You've got to go do your part. You got to go and do some work. Okay. Hey, Peter, I'm going to pay your temple tax, but for you to get it paid, you have to go down and do what with that? Yeah, go out there and catch that fish that has the money. You know, he didn't know how he was going to do it. But there is that, that whole idea. Oh, I'm going to help you with your kids. But parents, what do you have to do? Train up the child in the way he should go. Um, I'm going to help you with your family relationships but you have to do your part. I will help you to win and you know, minister and disciple some of those individuals in your neighborhood, at your workplace. But you have to give out the word of God that doesn't return void. And so here's this idea of faith that all of a sudden it has to be activated. It has to operate. It has to do more than just talk about it. You know, you have to, you have to be an individual that puts feet Behaving according to the word. Behaving according. Um, I remember, this is a true story. This happened in our church years ago. That uh, there was a missionary that came to the States. And uh, before he came to the States, uh, he wanted to, he was going to come and present his ministry, his needs here in the States. And he wanted to raise for his youth camp a certain amount of money that he needed to run that youth camp. So he made lined up a number of churches that he would be preaching in. And he started this two-month journey, came stateside. And when he came stateside, he had not had contact with our church. He and I had had contact, but he hadn't had contact with our church prior to coming. But when he got stateside, he got a hold of our address and everything, and then we ended up being the last church that he would be in before he'd fly back to the Philippines. And so this was his first visit to the States doing this. And he started off, and he went through several weeks, and after several weeks of visiting churches and presenting his ministry, here's what he got. He had $50 to the good to pay for all of whatever the cost was for this trip, visiting multiple churches in churches three to four times a week. 
presenting the ministry. It just wasn't happening. But he believed God was in it. He really believed God was in it. He believed that God had lined this up, but he got so discouraged. He told me the, the whole story afterwards. He got so discouraged that he called the airlines at one moment and said, you know, what would it, what would it cost me to change the flight, to go back early? Because it wasn't, nothing was happening. And it cost more than one that he had in his pocket. So he just prayed about it, and he, he said, I was convinced God wanted me to continue. The next two churches he went to, the offerings didn't even cover his expense to get to the churches. And then on top of it, the two, of the, the two pastors came, and they said, you know what, you should learn to speak English better because this was, this was in the southern area. Okay? They had a little bit of a drawl. Okay? And they said to Let, you should learn to speak southern English. Okay? Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Do you, you ever heard him speak? Okay. So, um, so Let said, I was so discouraged. And he said, in the last church I was coming to, and he said, I'm thinking, this is a failure. He called his wife from here, and he said to Lisa, her name is, he said, Lisa, this is a failure of a trip. I don't know what God's going to do. It's just been a total disaster. He said, I really believed God was in this. And, and I, you know, I, but I'm praying, I'm praying, maybe something will happen. And that Sunday morning, he, he walked into the auditorium and he said, I, almost, I stood there in the back door, he said, I was paralyzed. I didn't realize there would be so many people. And he said, then he got up and he said, I stumbled the first minute or so because you terrified him. That's, you, you people can be intimidating. Okay. And so he said, I was just beside myself. I was shaking. He said, I was so thankful for that big pulpit so I could hide behind it because let's kind of little. Okay. And so he said he was, and then he started preaching. And he said, he just, he absolutely fell in love. He said, I got so comfortable with the church people. Just the response of the audience that they laughed when you were supposed to. That makes a difference, by the way, okay? Um, That you were with them and answering when he asked a question. And he said, I just, more and more and more and more. And so he saw me at the back door after the service. And he said, this has been the biggest blessing of the entire trip just to be able to minister here and to be able to meet the people. And they were so gracious that I needed a pick-me-up and you folk provide the pick-me-up. And about 20, 30 minutes later, I was able to go to him and say, by the way, here's the offering that the people gave. It was exactly the amount that he needed to run the camp, that you gave him several thousand dollars that day. And he was just like, and I remember, most of you are gone. And I can't do it because of my leg this evening. But he started jumping up and down in the foyer. And it was like, you got to calm down, buddy. Okay. But he was literally jumping up and down and saying, oh, God is so awesome. Oh, God is so awesome. God is so awesome. He said, oh, me of a little faith. God is so awesome. Then he stopped and said, oh, and so are the church people here. They're very awesome. <laughs> but he, he told me, he said, that, that was a huge lesson for him in his ministry. Just to remember, God is faithful if we are just willing to wait for the crumbs that fall from the table. That God will bless. Believe in his greatness. And as a result of believing his greatness, beg. Beg and behave accordingly. Father, help us in our faith. Help us not just to think about it and make it a theoretical part of our life, an academic part of our life, but help us to have active faith. Faith that really believes in what you can do and will behave accordingly. And we're going to come right now with a lot of these prayer requests. We're going to beg you to bless some of these impossible situations. Help us. 
Help us to see you working in our lives, we pray. Let's take opportunity for prayer. They're going to have their ministries going until quarter after, so take advantage of the prayer time and visit in the foyer. Thanks.